Welcome to Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. I'm Tracy Brown, the fraud-busting body language expert. I've spent the last 20 years reading people, uncovering secrets hidden in plain sight to find the truth in crimes, politics, and billion-dollar business deals. And I want you to be able to tell whose pants are on fire, make better decisions, and build your bottom line as well. Get ready. Let's dive in. It's Tracy, and I am here with super producer Alex. How are you? I'm here. I am doing just fine. Thank you for having me today. Are you? You're just fine. I'm. I. You know, you're always a little better than fine to me. Like you always bring make make my day like a little happier. Well, I'm a little distracted today because my neighbors have just come back in town. My next door neighbors, uh-huh. and uh, they've been gone for two months. They were over in Bulgaria. Oh, and which is where his wife is from. So mm-hmm. they went to see family. I assume back there, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now I'm going to have to go over there and let them know that uh, I hope they like the new retaining wall between my property and theirs because while they were gone, a car drove through it. Oh, that's right. Now, I wish that we had had some video of that because you live on a street that is it's a little bit of an odd angle. And somehow a car came around the turn really fast and then fishtailed around into your neighbor's driveway. And it knocked was, down y'all's oh, wall. It was a production. So basically what it was, somebody came around a turn too fast, uh, you know, kid, teenager, mm-hmm. and um, uh, lost control of the car, fishtailed one direction, overcorrected, fishtailed the other direction, spun all the way around, entered my neighbor's driveway sideways, mm-hmm. sliding sideways. I don't have that, the logistics of that are just improbable at best. And as their tires caught traction again, and they rolled forward straight into the retaining wall and went through it. How did they miss the tree? That's the thing. Like I do don't do know, that? but I don't care what kind of stunt driver you are. That that would be a very advanced maneuver to pull off to oh, slide yeah. sideways into someone's driveway. Mm-hmm. I, I was I was truly impressed with their driving skills right up until they drove through my retaining wall well yeah now you know who else did some pretty advanced moves here is our next guest uh who's craig, that craig stanland craig and okay now i i uh we both had keynotes at the um iia dallas is the institute of internal auditors the the dallas uh conference back in april uh-huh. and i got to meet him i got to listen to part of his talk and he orchestrated an $834,000 fraud scheme. He actually ran this $834,000 fraud. He ran it by himself. Okay. Yeah. And he was working really hard, but he tells us exactly what happened. And here's the cool thing is that he's actually like, he's, he's been to jail. He'll tell us all about that. Mm -hmm. Um, But he has reinvented himself and he is helping people on the other side of it. Uh, And it's, um, super impactful the work that he's doing out there and i guess the thing that i that i learned for him from him is he had this one line and it stuck with me and and he said you know why like in doing something like this why would he risk so much for so little it, and, yeah. and and that's even at the eight hundred thirty four thousand dollars not even a million dollars yeah yeah it's not even a million dollars and he had to work for it he had to work hard for it mm-hmm. um and so, because he he knew the insides of of Cisco and his job, and so he's going to tell us all about how he did it. And and he's um, a, a just super nice guy that that you know I got to talk to, and I love the work he's doing now. If he wants to go bigger, I know of a little scheme 
where you write a little piece of code and you inject it into your corporate mainframe and it takes all the rounded off pennies that are un like less than a penny that are accrued from interest and put them into your bank account. Yeah, that's from that movie, The Office. <laughs> it was more sophisticated oh, yeah. than that. Yeah, it was also in Superman. Oh, well, so <laughs> I don't think it worked in either of those cases. It did not work. But Craig figured it out until he didn't figure it out. And he didn't know how long that they were on. They're on to him for a long time. and He didn't know it. Hmm. So I think what we need to do is go talk to Craig. Let's go. Well, let's do even better. Let's go listen to Craig. Oh, yeah, we'll do that. I'll talk. Let's you listen. OK, OK, I'll just yeah. shut up. <laughs> OK. It's Tracy, and I know today we have a fantastic interview on truth, lies, and cover-ups. Because, you know, I cover a lot of financial fraud here, and um, I got someone that knows a little something about it. I got Craig Stanlin here, and um, we met just really briefly because we were we both spoke in Dallas at the um, IIA. It's the Institute of Internal Auditors meeting, and... Um, I spoke first and then I didn't, Craig, I did not get to see enough of your talk. So welcome to the show. Tracy, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure meeting you in Dallas. And I got to see your talk from behind the scenes and it was awesome. Oh, good. Because there was some serious tech issues. <laughs> during I, my talk. There were, but you know, I mean, I have to give you total props. And I said this to everybody back there when there were those technical glitches going mm -hmm. on, such a pro didn't even, you didn't even bat an eyelash. And I love that. I was like, Wow, she is good. <laughs> oh, thanks. Because I was up there and I was like, I'm very distracted, but I'm going to keep going. <laughs> Did you have that like feeling in your heart? You're just like, what the heck is happening? A little bit of the nervousness. Yeah, yeah. Because I, because I, I schedule. Because here's what happened. Um, for everybody, is I I test and I test and I test, and my program is very video intensive, and I we tested it as much as we could, and then right before me were guys that what because uh, they had the head of the Nigerian stock exchange <laughs> like that they zoomed in from Nigeria and I'm like yeah no fraud there <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so anyway I didn't really get to do my full setup because I was rushed and then I had five minutes to plug my computer in because I require that I use my own computer because it's really video heavy and it doesn't always run on other machines well and we hit go and I hit my intro video and we had the audio, but we didn't have the video. And I was like, all right, well, that's a minute that you won't get back out of your life. And, um, and I just kept going and I called, I'm like, AV, come on up and I'm going to keep going. But I do that. I, my program is set so that I have about 15 minutes before I really need the video again, 15, maybe 17 minutes and um hopefully it'll be fixed by then and if it's not fixed by then then i'll make it up <laughs> as we go <laughs> so it's kind of well, built in that way kudos to you because you did a fantastic job oh oh thanks now i was fascinated by by your talk because you had a little trouble with fraud executing some fraud and so take us into the story like what's the What's what what happened? Because you were, did you work where Cisco? Is that it? Or I, I'm not sure. I didn't get the whole thing. So, you know, I'm going to um, let's backtrack a little bit. Let's go back to September 30th, uh, 2013. OK, on September 30th, 2013, I had pretty much what everybody would say was it all. Um, I was married. 
I had an unbelievably successful career. I owned four homes. I drove the fancy cars. I wore the fancy watches. Four I homes? All the Wait a minute. Where were your homes? <laughs> they were on a bunch of rent, uh, rental investment properties. Mm -hmm. So I had my main house and then three um, investment properties. So Got all it. in the Connecticut, New York area. Okay. Okay. Uh, and, you know, I had all of that stuff. Like I said, everybody would say I had it all. And then on October 1st, 2013, I walked into my brand new job. I noticed that there was a missed call on my phone. So uh -huh. I listened to the message and this is uh -huh. what I heard. Mr. Stanlin, this is Special Agent McTiernan with the FBI. We are at your residence and have a warrant for your arrest. Oh, shoot. You need to call us and come home immediately. Uh -huh. or we will issue a warrant with the federal marshals. Oh, my gosh. Okay. And so October 1st, 2013 was the day that I lost it all. Wow. Okay. Um, but were you surprised? You know, I'll tell you, when when I got that voicemail, all the oxygen in the room disappeared. I was having trouble breathing. My heart uh -huh. and stomach fell the 37 floors I had just come up. Uh -huh. I mean, sheer, utter terror, panic. Uh -huh. I thought I thought that voicemail was broadcast to the office and all my new colleagues knew that I was wanted by the FBI. Like, I uh -huh. mean, so much inner turmoil. Yeah. And to answer your question, amid all of that, my heart spoke and it said, I told you so. Oh, man. OK. OK. So what happened to lead to that moment? Let's start about that. Absolutely. So I was a senior enterprise um, account executive mm -hmm. for a large technology firm that was partners with Cisco Systems. Okay. We resold all of Cisco's equipment and their service contracts into our client base. We were, in a sense, an intermediary. We were a value-added reseller. Okay. Okay. So what does Cisco do? And I'm sure it affects everybody's life every day, but I don't really know. What What? What did y'all do? You know, um. To put it almost in the like the easiest sense, they make the stuff that makes the internet work. Okay. <laughs> our, okay. our communication right now uh -huh. via Zoom, I guarantee, I don't know this for, you know, I don't know this for a fact, but I'd be uh -huh. highly surprised if the bits and bytes of our conversation are not going through a Cisco device right now. Okay. Okay. They, so they make all routers, the networking equipment, routers, yeah. switches, mm -hmm. firewalls. All those rooms full of... Uh... That, that you see full of mainframe stuff and all of that. That's exactly right. The okay. data centers, when you see something in a movie and uh -huh. you know, they're doing all the tech stuff and they're like, you know, plugging into things. Uh -huh. Those are the, the boxes uh, that I used to sell into my existing client base. And I dealt with some of the largest financial institutions in the world and okay. some of the largest hedge funds in the world. Wow. Okay. So, um, Take us through that whole thing. So Cisco, you're reselling stuff. You're you're uh, selling these service contracts, as I'm sure are super expensive. And uh, what happened? So I will actually, I'll, I'll preface this. We'll go a little bit almost into like the fraud triangle and some of that okay. perceived need, if you mm -hmm. will. So I was, like I said, very successful. And I had got so caught up in the lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was, when I should have been working, I was walking up and down Greenwich Avenue with my girlfriend and then wife. And we were buying Christian Louis Vuittons and Jimmy Choo's and having champagne lunches on a Wednesday afternoon when I should have been working. Like with so, the red bottoms? The shoes. <laughs> correct. The red bottom shoes. Oh, man. Okay. Which are not cheap. They're no, they're like sixteen hundred dollars. And I tell you, I was in Vegas and I almost had a moment. I just about bought a pair and I was like, because uh, you know, it was in um 
it was in Caesars is where it was. And I was like, you know what? These are the, this is the most expensive. I'm going to buy these shoes in Caesars. Uh, uh, and I'm like, I can go home. Cause I, I was smart. I was like, I can go home. I'll find them on eBay. Couldn't find them. I'm like, eh, that's fine. <laughs> and, and that was that. Let me, let me tell you something. You don't want to be where I found myself when I would walk into Saks Fifth Avenue. Uh-huh. Uh, the shoe guy, his eyes would light up when I walked in. Really? Yeah. And I now realized that I don't want to be that person. That was not a good place to be. Oh my so God. here I am living this lifestyle and I never actually felt worthy of my success. And I never felt worthy of my wife at the time. Um, you know, I felt very inadequate and my identity became so inextricably interwoven with my lifestyle and my ability to buy those things. Mm-hmm. So here I am, you know, partying it up basically mm-hmm. when I should have been working. So my paychecks start dropping uh- the equipment. Cisco equipment that I was selling was becoming more commoditized Mm -hmm. and my commission checks were based on the gross profit of each deal. So now that it's becoming more commoditized, the margins are shrinking. So Mm -hmm. my paychecks are also shrinking. So I got two double whammies Uh and I've got this unbelievable need to maintain this lifestyle with shrinking paychecks. I got to fix this problem. Mm -hmm. So I start looking at what do I know really well? I know how to leverage Cisco service contracts. Mm -hmm. Um, because I started, I'll rewind even a little further. When I got into the corporate world, I had zero experience. I was so technically inept. Uh-huh. I, I really was very fortunate to get this job, but I started at the bottom. Okay. I started all the way at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And that's important because I had to learn everything from the ground up. So I you learned knew it all. I knew, I knew it all. Okay. And one of the things that our clients despised was calling Cisco's technical support to get uh, to troubleshoot and to get replacement equipment when a piece of equipment would um, die while it was in production. Or sometimes they would um, show up out of the box and they wouldn't work. They'd be uh, dead on arrival. And our clients, very rare, very rare that would happen, but it it did happen every so often. Mm -hmm. Our clients hated that because like, think about it. Do you like calling you know, tech support for your Wi-Fi router at home? No. It's oh, my terrible. God. I hate it. It's, it's terrible. people in India, they're like, my name is Sally. I'm like, no, it's not. I'm like, stop it. I'm not dumb. Like, and you don't have any answers. <laughs> so that is the equivalent of calling Cisco's technical assistance center. It was very frustrating. And okay. these calls could take so much time. And our clients have so many other things that they need to be doing. Yeah. And I said, well, I'm technically inept. I can't troubleshoot and I'm not on site. Mm-hmm. However, I can get them replacement equipment for when things die. So mm-hmm. I learned how to do that. I learned how to do it very effectively. Okay. You know, it used to take, you know, a half hour of being on the phone of going back and forth with them. You know, I'd get it down to three to five minutes. Oh, wow. I learned the language that they were looking for uh-huh. so that I could get that replacement equipment to Cisco as quickly as possible. Our clients absolutely loved it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I I took that off their plate. Mm -hmm. And there's an important part of this process. When Cisco, when a piece of equipment dies, Cisco will, under that service contract, under that warranty, Mm -hmm. they will send a brand new piece of equipment to the end user and they will get it to them as quickly as possible because Mm -hmm. they want to keep that network up and running. Right. The key part is the end user is now responsible for sending a piece of equipment, that piece of equipment, the faulty piece of equipment back to Cisco. Got it. They want to be made whole. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to troubleshoot it. They want to learn from that. Yeah, Why did it fail? It. Yeah. They want to refurbish mm-hmm. it. Exactly. Exactly. 
So I would also drive to our clients and pick the piece of equipment up and handle the return. Oh, is that to, a normal thing? Is or or I don't know. When I was doing um, this, when I was in, I was in corporate for about thirteen years, mm-hmm. and I don't know of anybody else who did that. It was a real differentiator for us to oh, okay. to separate us from you know our competitors. It was mm-hmm. a real value add, and so that knowledge taught me how to do this very efficiently, very effectively. So now I've got this perceived need of, you know, having to make more money. Well, mm-hmm. what do I know better than anybody? I know how to get replacement equipment from Cisco. Right. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but now there's a little bit of that gotcha. I got to mm-hmm. ship equipment back to them. Mm-hmm. I have to be, I have to be whole. So what I did was I looked at if they're going to send me part number one, two, three, mm-hmm. how much can I sell part number one, two, three, four? And can I buy part number one, two, three online for less than I can sell the other one for? And it turns out that I could. So there was a delta between the two. Does that make sense? Huh, yeah, I think I got it. So so you're selling the used equipment that doesn't work. Is that right? And so buying am- something else that's used that does work? Is that Um, almost, almost got it. So I wanted to make sure that this thing could work. So I realized Cisco sends me a brand new piece of equipment. Uh How much can I sell that brand new piece of equipment for? I need to replace that piece of equipment. How much can I buy a used piece of that same equipment for? And is there a Delta between the two that I can then profit off of? Okay. And there was, Uh huh. sure. You know, I would go to eBay uh-huh. Um, I would go to eBay and be able to find part number one, two, three for less than I could sell the brand new piece of equipment for. Yeah. So I then realized, I said, okay, well, this, it has, it has mathematical functionality. It uh-huh. works. Mm-hmm. So I bought my own router. I bought my own Cisco service contract. Mm-hmm. And I put all the, it took me months to, to figure all this out. You know, uh-huh. I look like, um, I look like uh, Robert, what is it? Uh, John Nash from Beautiful Mind, Russell Crowe. Okay. You know, remember yeah, you yeah. had the post-it notes and all those things all over the place. Yeah. And and finally, I, figured, I realized, I said, this thing can work. It's got legs. I've got all the components that I need to make this happen. Uh-huh. And I remember the day I was sitting at my dining room table and I was, I was, hovering my finger over the mouse button to hit the to hit the send button to to initiate the fraud uh-huh. and you know that heart that said stop don't do this, this is not the way uh-huh it said or no it said uh, i told you so that's what it said it said stop don't do this this is uh-huh. not the way for you i knew that it was wrong uh-huh i knew that it you was wrong did it you did it the alternative uh-huh. to this was very simple but it was terrifying to me uh-huh. was to say to my wife at the time, I can't afford our lifestyle anymore. Uh-huh. I don't want to live like this anymore. I want to do something different. And the idea of seeing being seen as less than and having that frank mm-hmm. and honest conversation mm-hmm. scared the absolute hell out of me. Yeah, totally. And so, I, and so I hit that button, initiated the fraud, and it worked like a charm. So- you have to keep doing this though. Like, like there's, there's a lot of pieces to it. Like it's not that easy, right? Because you can't just like do it once and then, okay, you're good. It's like, no, you got to cash flow this thing and keep it going and going and going. I mean, it's a lot of work. Wouldn't it have been easier just to hustle a little harder in, in your regular job or. Absolutely. Absolutely. It absolutely would have been mm-hmm. so much easier to stop partying, to mm-hmm. drop that, 
and yeah. go back to working and hustling. Cause I, for many, many years, I mean, I was, uh, you know, first one in last one out yeah. of the office. Mm-hmm. You know I mean? I had, I'm not afraid of working hard, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to disappoint her. I didn't want to give up that lifestyle. It was who I became. Uh-huh. And there were so many easier viable options that I was honestly, it was almost like they were not available to me. You know, it was, this is the direction that I'm going uh-huh. and I'm going to take it to its absolute max. And to your point, so I had that one router with the one service contract. Uh-huh. It worked like a charm. Yeah, I had to scale it. So I ended up getting, I went to three devices and contracts, uh-huh. then to five. I eventually had about 18 of them. Wow. Okay. Uh, and then what, so, so did you work it? So stuff was just breaking every day, left and right. Or how did you really like, what did you have a timing with the whole, because it seems so sophisticated in a certain way, but it's like knowing the system a little bit better than everybody else. But like, did you, were you on a schedule with things or cause you, you're a smart guy in um, research went into this. Like what was the plan? I love, I love how intuitive you are. Um, nobody has ever asked me that. There was a schedule. Oh, you know, really? there was, okay. yeah, absolutely. I, uh-huh. I love that you just picked up on that. Uh-huh. And I would love to really quickly just share a story yeah. that I think speaks to the sophistication. When I was arrested, uh-huh. sitting in the back of the unmarked car, you know, with yeah. the dark tinted windows with the yeah. FBI agent, you know, feeling helpless and hopeless, he said to me, he said, How many people were involved in the fraud? Uh-huh. And I said, Just me. And he said, BS. He didn't actually say that. I'm being nice for the podcast. Sure, I don't know sure. if language is allowed here. But, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, he said, BS. Uh, we think there was about a team of about 30 people running this because no way that one person could do that on their own. And I, I, I took quite a lot of convincing to tell him that it was just me. See, I was wondering that because that's about when I walked into your talk to get that thing. I'm like, how many people did this guy have? So really, it was just you. And okay, so... I mean, this is like more than a full-time job then. Like it's. It, it became insane. So I had 18 devices, 18 service contracts, multiple company names. And I'm putting the, I know people are listening, but I'm doing air quotes because the company names existed only in my head. They okay. didn't, they were not real. There was no okay. paperwork. I mean, literally they were in my head. Um, like I said, four different shipping locations. It was so many balls to keep up in the air. Yeah. It was ridiculous. It was, I I use this analogy in my presentation, that scene at the end of Goodfellas, uh-huh. when Ray Liotta is coked out of his mind. I've never done cocaine, but uh-huh. he's coked out of his mind. Uh, the babysitter forgot her lucky hat and they've got to go to the airport and she won't go without it. So uh-huh. he's got to go get the hat. The brother has to stir the sauce and it's he's driving and he's looking up for the helicopters, thinks everybody's following him. That frenetic energy of that scene hits something to this day, 10 years later, wow. hits something in me um, very raw. Uh-huh. It brings me back to that awful feeling of keeping this thing afloat yeah. and, and lying and uh-huh. just being deceptive to myself, to my wife at the time, to my family, um, and just hustling all over the place. I don't like that scene, and I don't like uncut, uncut gems with Adam Sandler. It gives me that same... Uh-huh. Um, very tense feeling because of that frenetic energy. Yeah, because someone's like you know, like, it's all, you're always watching your back kind of thing. But then there's so much to keep up with. And it, did you have spreadsheets that you use for this, or what? How did you? Do, how did you really do it? 
<laughs> so I'll have to, to share the same FBI agent later um, mm-hmm. in the in the justice journey, if you will, uh, came up to me and said, I want to thank you because never in my career have I ever come across such clean and beautiful spreadsheets. You made my job super easy. Oh my easy. gosh, wow. He ended, up, he ended up winning an award. My case and another case were um, two of the reasons he got that citation, you know, uh-huh. got that award. Uh, but so, yeah, I had I had unbelievably detailed spreadsheets. Uh-huh. Um, wow, okay. So then what, what was the delta between... I guess one of your most expensive products and the stuff you that, that you bought, the stuff that the junk you bought off of eBay, like what was the spread there? It would, it would range anywhere from um, a few hundred dollars to uh-huh. a few thousand dollars. Okay. And then, cause you pulled out what, like 800,000 or so. It was um, my restitution was $834,000. Uh-huh. That was um, Cisco. Um, actually did me a favor when uh-huh. they were calculating the loss. The list price was in excess of a million dollars. They sell to partners at a 40 to 42% discount. Mm-hmm. They applied that discount to the list price of the equipment that I had taken from oh, them. Oh, wow. Okay. And that's important. You might know this, uh, but for the listeners, if you, um, in terms of restitution, if you break a million dollars, that puts you into a completely different um, bracket for your sentencing range. You serve a much longer time frame. Oh, really? Okay. So okay. I was very fortunate that they did that and they kept me under that million dollar mark. Wow. Okay. So how long did this whole thing run, this whole scramble to keep this thing going and make it profitable? 10 to 10 and a half months. Okay. And that's and that's a little under like where people like because the average is like, the ACFE says is like eighteen months or so, so um, wow. ten ten months, <laughs> and then uh, like how did how did you end up getting caught? Like it seems it seems pretty well thought out, you know, <laughs> like it really does. There are three very specific reasons that I got caught. And I will caveat this with, um, if anybody wants to defraud a tech giant, don't do it. They're smarter than you are. Oh, <laughs> Full <okay>. stop. <laughs> Full stop. That's the end of story right there. Uh-huh. But the three very definitive ways that they caught me. Number one, uh, you know, we were just talking about all those balls being up in the air yeah. and, you know, running around fr- um, frantically. Mm-hmm. So, I was running around so much and it was so much to maintain. I got lazy and I started using the same exact language for all of my technical assistance center cases. So Um, here I have supposed multiple company names mm -hmm. with multiple aliases and all of these disparate places are using the same exact language. Uh, So giant red flag right there. They were able to pick up on that anomaly. That's number one. Now, number were they using two, AI oh, the, to do that? Because that'll do that. They were they were using, um, from what I understand, they were using AI to be mm-hmm. able to catch that on you know anomaly. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. In the number language, two. number two, uh, we'll go back to that good old part number one, two, three. Uh, these are I'm going to use random numbers here. I don't know the exact numbers, but you'll get the point. Uh-huh. Let's say that Cisco sends out ten of part number one, two, three per week to their end users. Uh They're sending 10. So they got this nice linear 10. Maybe it's nine, maybe it's 11, maybe it's 12. You know, it's in that range. Average is about 10. Now 
all of a sudden, out of the blue, it's 25. Uh-huh. It's 26. It's 29. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's, it's spiked. There was an, an anomaly. And now all of a sudden, it's going to, they're going to look at it and say, what the heck is going on with part number one, two, three? Do we have uh-huh. a manufacturing problem? You know, it's going to raise a red flag. So uh-huh. that was that was a giant one. And number three is probably the biggest of all and wickedly embarrassing on my end. I used the same IP address. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so you're just at home. I was at home. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's so basic, but like not top of mind when uh, I like, I get it. I get how that could happen. Um, okay. So wh- like what happens after all this? Okay. So the F- you're with the FBI. Do you just say, yep, I did it. Or what do you do? So I didn't immediately invoke my right to silence. Um, you know, they did ask how many people were involved. Um, you know, they asked if my wife was involved. Mm-hmm. Um, they were pretty cruel about that, actually, um, I have to say. And she had nothing to do with it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And then they were asking where I was on, let's say it was September 11th of the previous year. And one of my clients was devastated by the attacks on September 11th. So they would have a charity event. So every year I was at the event and that's where I assumed that I was. Uh And I said, I was at, um, you know, my client um, who I won't name here, but I was at their charity event. And he just said, BS, you were not there. We know for a fact you weren't there. And I said, where I thought it was. I'm there every year. Uh-huh. And he said, BS, this is not the way you want to do it. Don't go down this road. And I said, I'm invoking my right. Oh. And that's when I realized that things were not, I wasn't trying to be decided. That's where I thought I was. Uh-huh. So, so you weren't there though? I mean, like, like I, I, I mean, a year ago, no one's going to remember where they were, but do you, do you, I, where were you? I don't know. Oh. It never, it never actually came. So what was so strange that never came back up. Uh-huh. It wasn't, Maybe it was pivotal pivotal at the time, but it never came back up. Huh. So I don't even know why that line of questioning mattered. But when I saw how angry he was getting uh-huh. and I was being sincere in my answer, uh-huh. I realized that I have to invoke. Right and, right. and he did say, can I ask you one more question? You don't have to answer it. And I just said, sure. Uh-huh. You know, why not? He said, why did you do it? And I said, I needed the money. And uh-huh. right then and there, I knew I was guilty, but that was just an immediate admission yeah, of yeah. guilt, hands down. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Wow. Okay, so then uh, did you ever talk to anybody at Cisco or anybody, any of your clients or any, like, did you have any connection with anybody that was involved after after the, the you were caught? No, so I was... Um, I forget. I'm trying to remember when this was put forth. It might have been at sentencing, uh-huh. but at some point there was a court order barring me from mm-hmm. speaking to anybody at Cisco. And mm-hmm. with my old company, um, you know, I, it's so funny. I, I've been in touch with somebody recently. This is mm-hmm. 10 years later, and I've been in touch with somebody who still works for my old company. Oh, uh-huh. um, and he told me, I didn't know this, that they called each individual office and said, if anybody asks about Craig Stanland, you say no comment. Right. And so, you know, I, I personally on my end was so filled with shame and so embarrassed by this that I wasn't reaching out to anybody. Uh-huh. You know, I, I went into I went into a hole. Yeah, I imagine so. You know? So then, OK, 
did, did the FBI keep you in custody until, cause did you have like a, uh, how, how did the court system kind of work? Uh, what was the process? Very interesting question. So they took me to um, a courthouse uh, mm-hmm. here in Connecticut. And I was really fortunate that this happened because when I was arrested, the government was in a shutdown. October 1st, 2013, the government oh. was in one of their shutdowns. Right. And the FBI agent gleefully told me that everybody that was there, like 15 plus agents, uh, they all uh, volunteered to arrest me for no pay. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. Okay. And- So I was lucky. I went to the courthouse. They were able to get a judge. And my father and wife at the time posted bail. Mm -hmm. And I was, um, you know, I was able to leave Mm -hmm. that day several hours later. Okay, so you left. And then did you go back for court once everything was back on? Or how did it all square out? So an interesting thing about the the, I'll I'll get there. But I think Mm -hmm. this is kind of just an interesting part of the story. I was Mm -hmm. so paranoid about this hitting the news. Yeah. And, you know, with the government being shut down, there was no press office. And so I was I kind of thought, oh, wow, at least I get to get away with it. So I don't have further shame and embarrassment. Right. Well, when they reopened, the press office picked up on it and it First blew thing. up on the news. Oh. You know, we we were my wife and I were keeping it under wraps. Uh-huh. Um, you know, my neighbors, our friends knew something was wrong, uh-huh. but we just weren't sharing. And then it just blew up on the news. Uh-huh. And so that cat was out of the bag. Yeah. And, you know, it took, I was arrested on October 1st. I pled guilty in January of the f- 2014. Mm-hmm. And then I pleaded guilty um, June 10th, 2014. And then I went into prison on August 13th, 2014. Wow. So you had a little bit of time to get your affairs in order. Um, I, I guess, um, like, how did I, I'm always curious about how that works. Like, what did you, did you do anything or did you, what, what could you do? How, is there a prep for that or? This is, this is a, this is a big question. So I had about 10 months between getting arrested and mm-hmm. actually walking into federal sure. prison. Mm-hmm. And obviously I was no longer employed. So right. I had to figure out income and do it very quickly. My wife at the time had started a vintage furniture business So we went all in on that. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like, we've got to get this thing up and running and profitable before I go away. So we were we were unbelievably busy with that. Mm -hmm. My you know, that was a little bit of a distraction, if you will. Mm -hmm. But my pretrial probation officer, she was very sweet. She told me, you know, don't look into prisons. Don't Google prisons. It's only Mm -hmm. going to scare the heck out of you. So I didn't. if I had, I would have learned that I was probably most likely going to a federal prison camp with nonviolent drug offenders and other uh-huh. white collar offenders. My safety wasn't going to be a concern, uh-huh. but I didn't research it. And so I thought, you know, for the listener, I'm 5'4". At the time of being arrested, I was 140 pounds. I'm not a big uh-huh. guy whatsoever. Uh-huh. And the stress from this actually, uh, I lost over 30 pounds. I went down to 109 pounds. So I oh, was a goodness. tiny little feather, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. And I bring that up because... I didn't know that I'd be going somewhere where my safety wasn't a concern. I thought I was going to Oz. I thought I was going to get raped and beaten every single day. Oh, yikes. And uh-huh. I thought that for, you know, close to 10 months living with that uncertainty yeah. of where I was going to go. It was terrifying. Did it you was, see it that was... movie about that? Kevin Hart? No. Get, get hard? You got to see it. It's okay. funny. <laughs> but not, not to... Not to belittle that I can only imagine like that this is going to be terror, like every day, terror. Um, Sheer, unadulterated 
terror. It was, yeah. it was, I, I actually think that I might've taken a couple of years off my total lifespan because of the amount of cortisol that was running through my body yeah, and the amount of stress uh -huh. that was running through my body. I mean, uh -huh. it was, you know, and I, I was, I was drinking excessively, you know, just trying to kind of drown the pain away, Yeah, you know, make things okay. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it was, it was a terrible time period, but I was able to my neighbor. So the story hitting the press actually had one positive aspect to it. Uh -huh. My 80 something year old neighbor, Wayne read the mm -hmm. local paper, picked up on it. And he sent me a really sweet text. And he said, I'm so sorry that you're going through this. You know, he talked about a little, a couple of other things and he finished with, I really think you should talk to a friend of mine. His name is Jeff. And he gave me some information on Jeff. Mm -hmm. and it turns out Jeff was the founder of the progressive prison ministries, which is oh. a white collar support group. Huh? Okay. And so I, called up Jeff and he helped counsel me mm -hmm. before going in what to do, what not to do, what to be on the lookout for, mm -hmm. how things work when you're in prison. So I had a little bit of an education before going in, you know, oh, um, I'll give you, I'll give you two silly things, but they're really important to know, even though I was going to most, we didn't know yet, mm -hmm. but I'm um, going to a federal prison camp. There's still rules that you follow. Mm -hmm. And one of them is if somebody, if an inmate is mopping the floor, you do not walk across their floor without asking explicit permission to oh. do so, or you wait until they're done. Okay. Otherwise you're going to get, you know, you're going to get clobbered. Mm -hmm. So you have to ask that you do not sit in anyone's chair in the TV room without asking for permission. Does okay. this chair belong to anybody? Uh -huh. Things like that. So I knew how to, how to behave, you know, huh. when I went in. Okay. Okay. Now, um, what's your wife thinking of all this at the time? So she knew I was doing something because obviously there's all these balls up in the air uh -huh. that, you know, I'm running around to all these different shipping locations, boxes are coming and going. Yeah. And she said, she would always ask me, are you sure what you're doing is okay? And I would blow her off and say, stop asking me. It's fine. Everything is all right. Uh -huh. And I just would blatantly lie. And, huh. you know, after the arrest, there were so many arguments and it was just you know, I broke the covenant of any relationship, yeah. whether it be a spouse or friend or family trust, mm -hmm. you know, I demolished it. I lied to her over and over again. Mm -hmm. And so she just didn't trust me. Yeah. And it was, it was just very tumultuous. And mm -hmm. she ended up, um, three days before Christmas in the prison visiting room told me that she was leaving me. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, did you see that coming? You had to kind of, have oh, I, I, I write about it in my book. I called it like the sword of Damocles, you know, just mm -hmm. hanging over my head by the, uh, the, the horsehair. Mm -hmm. I just, I knew when I would talk to her on the phone and even through emails, I could just feel it. You know, I could yeah. just feel that something was wrong. The distance. Yeah. And something was, yeah, the distance. Um, and I, I, I knew it was coming. Still mm -hmm. caught me by surprise, but I knew it was coming. Well, yeah, there's and it's so common. There's actually there's a support group for uh, women of white collar criminals, um, like, like the wives. Like it's it's crazy. And I've interviewed Lisa Lawler runs it. Um, it's it's crazy because th there's there's not a lot of support for the wife, and a lot of times they're thought of as victims or not. Sorry, not victims of a uh, part of the scheme, right? Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's crazy difficult now. Um. What happened in prison? Because a lot of people have like a reckoning, I guess, or uh, they there's a lot of time to think. 
so what what went down for you? So I will I will say that I went to a decent prison. You know, we had nice landscaping. We had deer. We had oh. a we had a cat that used to come around. We had a, a goose with a broken wing that oh. I would I worked in the kitchen, so I would oh. feed him. He would come running up to me. I swear he would smile. You know, there was it, it was safe, and I was in a actually all things considered nice environment. Uh-huh. My prison cell was the prison cell of shame. I knew what I was doing was wrong. Mm-hmm. I hurt myself. I hurt my family. I hurt my wife. Mm-hmm. I hurt society. I was absolutely enveloped in shame yeah. to such an unbelievable degree that um, it's going to get a little dark now, but I won't be too, okay. I, I have to tell the story, but yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I started meditating in prison because oh, like okay. you said, there's a lot of time mm-hmm. and it was something that I always wanted to do. And well, you got to find a routine in prison. And this was part of my routine. One day during meditation, uh, my mind showed me a video of what my own suicide would look like. And oh, it was very really? graphic. Yeah, it was very, very graphic. It was as if I was sitting in an audience and watching it on stage. It was very strange. So I would walk in from um, stage left. Okay. And and I had a black hood over my head. Mm-hmm. And I knew it was, even though I couldn't see that it was me, I knew it was me because I could just feel yeah, this yeah. individual's resignation in his bones. And I would sit on a chair besides this really dirty windows in one of the basements of one of the houses that I owned. And I pulled a gun out from under the chair and I put it in my mouth and squeezed the trigger. Mm. And it was really brutal. So uh, this this image comes up, this video comes up and I wave it off because I was just like, I don't want to think about that. And I, yeah. I thought it was so strange. And you know, I, it haunted me a little bit, but I just thought it was a one-time thing. And when I went to go meditate again, it came back. And I waved it off again, and it came back. Eventually, that short video played every second of every day for four months straight. Oh. To, the, to the point where I could actually feel and taste the cloth in my mouth when I put the gun in my mouth. I could feel the cold of the barrel. I could feel the bullet exiting my head. I wow. mean, as all of this was as raw and as visceral uh-huh. as if it was happening in real time. Uh-huh. And I would go to bed at night praying and wishing that the hand of death would kill me in my sleep. Just I make bet. this stop. Yeah. Just uh-huh. make this stop. And every morning when I woke up, I was disappointed at the light of a new day. And I that's when I started to plan how I was going to kill myself. Yeah. Wow. Okay. But you didn't because you're still here. So something must have happened. What shifted it? One of the most miraculous things that I could ever imagine. My best friend of 30 years sent me an email on a Wednesday mm-hmm. afternoon and said, just said, hey, man, can I come for a visit this weekend? This was really important because I was having these terrible thoughts. I couldn't share with any of my family and friends over the phone because the calls are monitored. Email is monitored. I couldn't share with any of my friends in prison who were super nice guys, but they would tell a guard or somebody else. And I don't know if you know what happens if you mention suicide in prison. No. They they lock you in a room that is um, three sides of it is all glass. Uh-huh. They take all your property away, put you in a gown, uh-huh. and they lock you in solitary. And you're under 24. It's, 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 don't get me started on that. I mean, it's, you know, no concern about people's actual mental health Mm -hmm. whatsoever. Uh And I'm here, I am 
alone at rock bottom with the man who was responsible for all of this. And I hated that man. The idea of being locked in isolation scared the hell out of me. Uh So I couldn't share with anybody, but now Sean's going to come for a visit. Okay. And I, the visiting room's not monitored. So I can tell him things are not good. I need help. Uh And it seems to take forever for Saturday to arrive, but it finally does. Uh And we, we settle down into our seats and I'm telling you, Tracy, I was like, it was a first kind of feeling of joy that I had felt that I was going to be able to get this story, get this demon out of me. Like, oh, good. I'm like, this is it. This is my moment. Here I go. I open my mouth to speak. Sean cuts me off and he starts to speak. Uh-huh. He's got, he's getting a divorce. He's got uh-huh. work issues. He's got money issues. In our 30 plus years of friendship, I've never seen or heard my friend this sad before. He was hurting. Uh And it was in that moment that my entire life changed because I realized that I had worth outside of every single thing that I had thought made me worthy. I was Mm -hmm. a friend and nothing more. Wow. That's pretty huge. So, okay. So did the vision stop? So, so. And how's your buddy for one? First, let's talk about that. He's, he's great. He's doing very well. He made it through everything just fine. Mm -hmm. Funny enough. When I realized all of this and I just sat and I listened, Mm -hmm. you know, and I, it dawned on me as I'm listening to him, just venting, I realized he could have walked a hundred feet to his brother's house because they were next door neighbors Mm -hmm. and they're very close. He could have shared all of this with him. He drove two hours to come to federal prison, which, you know, spoiler alert, it's not the most fun place to come visit. Mm -mm. He chose to see me. And this was all just settling into my bones and just literally changing my life. I never told, I never told him. I didn't even, when he was done talking, I didn't have to. He didn't find out until I wrote the book and I tell this story in the book and I wanted to make sure he was okay because of how I portrayed him. Mm-hmm. And he loved it, shared it with his family, sent it all around. Wow. Um, the girl he was dating at the time told me um, when he walked away, she looked and she's like, is he in the other room? She's like, just so you know, he cried when he read it. Oh. <laughs> Which was really, you know, he had, he, he had no idea that his visit had that level of an impact on me. So that night was the first night in, you know, four and a half months or so that I did not pray uh-huh. for the hand of death to take me. And the next morning when I woke up, it was not unicorns and rainbows. I was right. still in prison. I was uh-huh. still enveloped in shame, but I wasn't disappointed. And it was that, Sean's visit was that first pinpoint of light in literally what had been a sea of darkness. Uh-huh. And it was from that moment that I decided I was going to rebuild and reinvent my life. I didn't know what the heck that was going to look like, but I had to give meaning to this. I felt very compelled uh-huh. to give meaning to the suffering that I had caused uh-huh. my now my now ex-wife uh-huh. and my family and society. I still didn't feel worthy of giving meaning to my suffering uh-huh. at the time, uh-huh. but I, I had to give meaning by being of service to others. I, I It dawned on me that my story uh-huh. could help other people. Well, okay. And you are doing that, but I have a question first before we get to that. Do you think that there would have been another way for you to have gotten the profound message that you got besides doing all the fraud, going to jail and all that, right? Because we're all searching for something, some kind of value, some kind of uh, something in our life, which like is is why a lot of uh, fraud happens, right? And do, do you, was there another way or was this it? Was this the only way that was going to happen? 
Wow, I love this question. And it goes like to me on a very philosophical, spiritual level, yeah. if you oh. will. Um, mm -hmm. It really does. And, you know, I, like I said, I knew what I was doing was wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think this was just the biggest self-sabotage that a person could do. So I could start over from scratch. Mm -hmm. You know, I really do think that. Obviously, there would have been another way, but I was blind to it. Uh -huh. in, and I don't know, without all of this, if I would have gotten to it on my own. Mm -hmm. I really, I really don't. I... In my in my writing and, and my work with clients, I coined a term called the uh, the golden treadmill. Okay. And the golden treadmill kind of is as it sounds. It's yeah. that chasing that money, chasing status, mm -hmm. chasing prestige. But much like a treadmill, you can work really hard, but you don't really get anywhere. Yeah. Right. right. And I think that there are three options with this treadmill. Number one, you just keep going. You mm -hmm. you're you're chasing the horizon on a treadmill, which we all know how ludicrous that is because you're never going to do it. And you just keep chasing, you keep chasing. And you eventually realize towards the end of your life that, you know, you live a life of regret. Mm -hmm. It's that's one, that's option number one. Option number two is life knocks you off. And that can be mm -hmm. for me, it was prison. It could be a divorce. It could be a job loss. Um, it could be a disease, but life interludes and mm -hmm. knocks you off of that treadmill. Yeah. And then from there, the interesting thing is you still have to make a choice to make something of that because it doesn't mean automatically that you're granted this second chance. You have to take that second chance. Yeah. So that's an interesting one with option two. Option three, I honestly think is the most challenging and it, it almost flies in the face of how we're trained in society and condition mm -hmm. is to slow the treadmill down mm -hmm. and voluntarily step off and take the path to meaning. Oh, um, that's pretty cool. So let's talk. That's very cool. Um, let's talk about the meaning you found because you help a lot of people now. What are you doing? So I am, I am a reinvention architect. Okay. I help people reinvent their lives to find that sense of meaning that I think that we all intrinsically, it is who we are. We want our lives to have meaning. Mm -hmm. So I help my clients find what their life calling is. Because when we pursue why we're uniquely put on this planet, mm -hmm. that to me is one of the greatest sources of meaning that we can produce. So I work one-on-one -on -one with clients. I work with people who went through the justice system oh, you and who were a C-level executive, mm -hmm. but now they can't do that and they have to reinvent themselves. And I work with people who I would call pre-choice Craig. It's not that they're on the verge of committing fraud but they have that massive success, but they're not living a life that's in alignment with who they are and what they want to do. Mm -hmm. And they want to connect with that sense of meaning. Mm -hmm. So I work, I work with them. I do how we met. I do the speaking mm -hmm. gigs, mm -hmm. travel all around, sharing this message with fraud organizations, with companies, um, you know, just wanting to, to show people there's a different way yeah. and to show also just the aspirational from, you know, turning prison into purpose. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to burn it all to the ground to be able to create something new in your life, which right, is really right. important. Yeah. And, and, and writing, which this, this journey has reconnected me with my love of writing. It's uh -huh. something that um, lights me up. It's what gives me meaning. So I spend two hours every day writing. I'm oh, working really? on my second book now, oh, like good. clockwork. You're better I, than me. <laughs> I, I, it, it is 
it, it's like I said, it's what gives me meaning. It's my life's calling. Uh-huh. I love sitting down at the keyboard, even when the words elude me. Mm-hmm. I hate those days. Yeah. I know I want to say something, but it's just not coming through the fingertips. And I'm like, yeah. you know, I feel like an elephant banging mm-hmm. away at the keys and I'm just producing nonsense. I still love that. Mm-hmm. And I plan on writing as many books as I have inside me. Mm-hmm. Well, now, did you get some kind of coaching training to do this or did you kind of invent the system yourself or how did all this come about? Wonderful question. So a lot of it was the work that I did on my own. You know, I we had we had a very extensive library where I was in prison huh. and I just consumed books mm-hmm. and I did a tremendous amount of journaling and gratitude practice along with my meditation. Those are three practices that I still to this day do not miss. They're that important to me. Yeah, gratitude. Is huge. Yeah. Oh, gratitude is unbelievably amazing. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a game changer. Yeah, it's, a, it's such a game changer. Uh, those three practices really opened my eyes to why I made the choices that I made, and then that level of introspection, been able to create different tools. Some of which I feel I created intuitively, but I think other people have also created them. Mm-hmm. They're not probably unique to me, but right. I created my own tools, and I. I I created my system what I know worked for me. However, what works for me might not work for somebody else. Sure. And I think that's really, really important. Mm-hmm. So one day I got, um, I'm going to throw this in here because this answers your question. Um, after prison, I got a job at a gym in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, making okay. 12 bucks an hour, mm-hmm. you know, working the front desk at a gym. And I made really good friends, some of my best friends to this day. And one of my favorite people, I finally asked her, she would come in at like noon and one o'clock and just mm-hmm. kind of seem to have her own schedule. So I'm like, what the heck do you do? And she said, I'm a mindset coach and business okay. coach. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's awesome. What does that mean? And she explained it to me. Uh-huh. And so I shared with her for the first time my story. Mm-hmm. She had no idea. And I said, you know, I really want to, I'm writing the book. I want to get into speaking. And at the time, I thought I was going to consult for corporations Mm -hmm. because I was still kind of in that I'm a corporate guy. Yeah, That's what I know. And that's what I'm going to get back into. And I said, you know, do you think you could help me? I offer a free call. Why don't Mm -hmm. we have this free call? I'll tell you what it's like to work with me. We'll go through some of your stuff. After that free call, I was sold. Um, I I saved up my money. Uh She was not cheap. I mean, I saved. I I would, you know, there were a lot of times I skipped meals because I didn't Mm -hmm. have Oh. money for meals. Mm-hmm. And I, I hired her and I ended up working with her for two years. Mm-hmm. And she helped me put real structure to the work I do now. Okay. She helped oh, okay. me create the business that I've created. She was mm-hmm. unbelievably instrumental in, in my reinvention after prison. Oh, I was wow. Very What's fortunate. her name? Can, can you share? I might. Oh, I absolutely. Kim Argetsinger. Oh, I don't know her. She sounds cool though. I like her. She, oh, <laughs> so, so cool. She's got a, um, if I remember correctly, she's got a degree in psychology. Okay. So she definitely knows how the brain works. Yeah. She was an actress. Oh, she was an okay. actress for a long time. And then, you know, she wanted to do something different uh-huh. and she got into this and she, she's been doing it for ages. Um, okay. And she is remarkable at what she does. Wow. So then how long is the program with you? It is a six month program. It is uh-huh. my reinvention reset. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be, you know, we we meet once a week. I use a project management software so that we can communicate between those mm-hmm. sessions because I want to make it uh, like a container mm-hmm. where people feel comfortable so they can reach out to me, you know, on the weekend or whenever and say, hey, things aren't good. Or mm-hmm. also, which I love, hey, things are great and I want to share. 
There you go. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. Cause I, I used to coach a lot of people and I, I kind of, I, I don't really do that anymore every so often, but mostly it's just speaking and stuff, but yeah, the one-on-one can be really, uh, uplifting, like for sure. Like when they get those results, it's cool. It's, it's, it's one of the most rewarding things that I can do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll ask you, like when you were on the phone with clients, I don't know if you did zoom or audio or combination. Phone, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like when, a client has that tumblers falling into place moment mm-hmm. and you can actually feel the weight come off of their shoulders awesome. through the phone. Yeah. How cool is that? Right. I mean, yeah. that's just like, you know, there's a little bit, usually there's, there's usually a little pause. It's silent mm-hmm. and you can feel the weight coming off and them just going, Oh, they have this epiphany that they uh-huh. then, because it happens on an emotional level. Mm-hmm. And so that's with them for the remainder of their life. They have yeah. that that tool now and i i mean i love that well yeah and the thing about it is like uh because someone was asking me the other day about it because people still ask me stuff from time to time and they're like i'm doing these affirmations and you know nothing's changing i'm like well it's not about an affirmation right it's like you have a you have like 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 your mind's like a cake right and affirmation is like okay so you got a strawberry cake you put chocolate icing on it it's still going to be a strawberry cake with some chocolate ice like if you want a different cake, like you need to bake a different cake, then it doesn't matter what kind of icing you put on it with any kind of affirmation or whatever. And she was like, oh, like even just a little analogy sometimes can really bring people to uh, like a different understanding of what's possible. We were talking about her, her daughter was having some trouble. And anyway, but yeah, it's, it's super cool. Like to change people's lives, you know, one at a time. And, but, you know, I started speaking because then I got so many more at a time to, <laughs> to, to affect so so yeah, real quick speaking for me part of my part of my reinvention was mm-hmm. i realized that i had made fear-based decisions that yep. landed me in prison mm-hmm. not having that frank conversation with mm-hmm. my wife and so my intuition told me i had to write down all my fears and i had to execute them one by one public speaking was my number one fear ah <laughs> well you licked that one you're good on stage you really are thank so, you now, okay, you got a book and you look sounds like you got another book. How can people engage and start to get a little taste of the reinvention or do they have to jump in and just do coaching? What's what's what do you got? No, I would never have anybody jump in uh you know immediately to it. I think putting your toes in the water is a much mm-hmm. better way to do that. And way to do that is to go to craigstanlin.com. You can read my blog and just get a feel for you know, how I think Mm -hmm. and some of the things that I think about in regards to creating something new in our lives, some of the Mm -hmm. fears, some of the limiting beliefs. So that would be a really great place to, to start. I'm on LinkedIn posting every single day. Okay. And then uh, Craig Stanlin, or I was going to say the, um, sorry, the uh, blank canvas, how I reinvented my life after prison is on Amazon. Okay. Okay. Cool. Cool. Well, everybody knows how to get a hold of you, and I really hope they do because your message, uh, your your speech is really good. Your message and how you're helping people, I think, is so so valuable. And I think I think to to wrap it up, the thing that that hit me, the one thing that I did hear about your talk, I heard a couple, uh, but the one that hit me is like, why did I risk so much for so little? And I was like, wow. Okay, that puts it in perspective. Like that says it all. So um, any last uh, parting words for folks? Absolutely. What I would love anybody to consider, whether they've been through a justice journey or not, mm-hmm. um, you know, our past can be very limiting mm-hmm. to us. If And what I would like people to know is our past 
cannot define us without our consent. What else can we say? <laughs> Nothing except thanks for coming on Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. I think you're just, you're amazing. I'm glad that you found the path that you're on, even if you took the hard road. And um, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Same here, Tracy. Thank you so much for having me on and for this wonderful opportunity. Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. I'll see you next time. Love me better than you. (laughs) All right, let's do this next one before we really go off the rails. Okay.